0: Grace, good mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you paid attention to the gospel reading today, you know the story. Three men died on that day they called Good Friday. Crucified side by side outside the walls of Jerusalem on that place called Golgotha, the Skull Hill where the Romans did their killing. It was located near the Damascus Gate, which meant that everybody who came in and out of the city would have passed by to see these executions. Jesus of Nazareth, of course, was hanging on that middle cross. Two men were also crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. The question is, who were these two thieves that were hanging there? See, Bible translators have used a lot of different words to describe them. Some call them thieves, some call them robbers. I was raised calling them malefactors. That's an old word. Some people call them bandits. Luke's use of the word criminals is actually translated from the Greek as evil actors. In other words, these were members of the criminal class. They were probably professional criminals. Some writers even suggest that perhaps they were political revolutionaries, somewhat like Barabbas, who was freed in exchange for Jesus, thinking that they were the kind of people who were interested in overthrowing the government. Beyond that, we know very little else about these two men. We don't know their names. We don't know their hometowns. We don't know their specific crimes. We kind of assume they may have been partners in crime, but that too is Uncertain. Some people actually suggest that they were brothers, but again, there's really no way to be sure of that as well. In fact, we don't know them at all, except for one thing. They are supporting players in one of the greatest dramas of all times, the crucifixion of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, on the surface, these two men who hang on either side of Jesus are exactly the same, They were both criminals. They were both sentenced to die at the same time, the same place, and on the same day. Both of them had probably been severely beaten before they were crucified. Both were stripped naked before they were nailed to the cross, and both were probably covered with blood and dirt. Both men were dying, and both would soon be dead. No one could look at them and tell any difference between the two, probably. But in reality, no two men hanging on the cross could be uh, any different. These two men who were crucified on the outer crosses differed on one main point. It's how they viewed the man hanging on the cross in the middle. They saw him differently and therefore asked him for different things. One of the thieves wanted an escape. If you're really God, get us out of here. He cared little about forgiveness. The other man wanted forgiveness and not escape. So let's just take a closer look this morning, if you will, at this man who wanted forgiveness. He's a guilty man who's been justly punished. He deserves to die and he knows he deserves to die. By sundown, he will be dead. His case has been tried, the judgment has been announced, he has been nailed to a cross, the sentence is carried out. This man is about as close to death as you can be, and still be alive. But at the last moment, you see this passage from verse 42. At the last moment, he makes one final appeal to the Supreme Court of the universe. He says, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here we have one of the most amazing examples of saving faith in all of Scripture. This man's hands and feet are nailed to the cross. Ropes hold his body upright so he doesn't fall off that cross. Every movement is agony, every breath, torture. Beneath him is a crowd that's just really screaming for blood and more blood and more blood. They jeer at him, they hiss at him, they spit at him, they cheer when he coughs up blood, they shout approval when somebody may pick up a rock and even throw it at him and hit him. Yet it is here, in the midst of all of this blood and gore, that this man actually comes to faith in his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Somehow, this one thief saw Jesus bleeding and nailed, and yet he believed that he would someday be In his kingdom. See, he saw Jesus at his weakest moment, and he still believed in him. He's a crucified sinner believing in a crucified Savior. I mean, no man ever looked less like a king than Jesus hanging on that cross that day. Yet this thief saw him for who he really was. I think this is made even more amazing when you consider that this man had none of the advantages that the disciples had. See, as far as we can tell, he never saw Jesus preach from a boat on the seashore. Probably never saw Jesus heal the sick or raise the dead. He probably didn't know anything of Jesus' great parables. Maybe he never saw any miracles. He knew nothing of the virgin birth or Old Testament prophecies or About the the conversation with Nicodemus or Knight or the raising of Lazarus just a week ago. See, the coming miracle of the resurrection was totally unknown to this man. And yet, and yet, what? He believed. There on the cross, he came to understand the very heart of the gospel. See, in the crucified Jesus, whether he was beaten, mocked, forsaken, lifeblood ebbing away, this thief saw a king and another crown beyond that of the crown of thorns. See, one crucified man saw another crucified man and believed in him. And that made all the difference between heaven and hell. See, in that light, his words even seem more remarkable. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, by saying that, he didn't mean, uh, remember my name, Jesus. Uh, He wasn't saying, erect a monument to me someday, Jesus, in my memory. He simply said, at the end of this world, when our breath is gone, make a place for me in your kingdom. It's a rather modest prayer, isn't it? He knows he's probably asking for something that he doesn't really deserve. But here is a crucified sinner praying to a crucified Savior. I mean, he has faith in the person of Christ. Jesus, he calls him. He has faith in the power of Christ to even remember him. He has faith also in the power of Christ in the mercy of Christ. And he has faith in the kingdom of Christ. All of those things. And while his prayer is rather unusual when you think about it, it reminds us that God judges the sincerity of our hearts and not the accuracy of our words that we sometimes stumble as we pray. See, when you go to a doctor, uh, you don't usually know exactly what medicine you need. You just go to the right doctor and he'll make sure that you get the right medicine. Likewise, this poor, dying thief didn't know all the right words. He hadn't been to any class where he could take Luther's small catechism and study it. He wasn't even Lutheran, as far as we know. That's kind of a joke. But but what he said that day was good enough, because he said it to the right person. When he said, Jesus, remember me, he didn't know all that he was asking for. But guess what? Before sundown, he received far more than he expected. See, the thief on the cross was dying for his sins. It was a guilty man, justly punished. He cried out to Jesus, and at the very last second, he was saved. Now, the question is, how do we know that he was saved? Well, simply, did you hear what Jesus said to him in verse 43? He said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me. In paradise. See, Jesus answers his request by giving him a promise that's really got three parts to it. One of them is immediate salvation. Did you see that word today? He says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus put it first for emphasis in that sentence. I mean, this day, this day that you are crucified, this is the day I'm talking about. And and guess what? Wherever paradise is, Jesus said, that's where you're going to be this day, immediately. The second thing is a personal salvation. He so said, today you're going to be where? With me. With me. It means to be with me in a very personal way. It's not like I'm going to be over there and you're going to be over here. It's you and me side by side together. It means to be in the personal presence of another person, wherever Jesus was going, the thief would be right by his side. You know, sometimes we focus on heaven a lot, and uh, so much that we kind of miss the big picture of what heaven is all about. We sometimes wonder what our loved ones are doing up there on heaven this morning as we sit in church in Nixon, Missouri. But, you know, even in our best moments, the scripture says, we see through a glass darkly. We know so little of what life is like on the other side, but this much is true, friends. Heaven is where Jesus is, and to be with him is to be in heaven. See, the glory of heaven is not the streets of gold, it's not the gates of pearl, it's not the rivers of life, it's not even a whole bunch of angels flying around in the air. The glory of heaven is Jesus. Heaven is wherever Jesus is. And when we finally get to where Jesus is, we're going to be home for eternity. But there's a third part here, and that's this heavenly salvation. You know, paradise is an interesting word. You know, verily, verily, I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, paradise is a crucial word. Now, scholars tell us that it was originally referred to as the walled garden of Persian kings. And when a king wanted to honor somebody who was visiting, he would take him out into his beautiful garden in the cool of the day to kind of show off. Now, paradise was used in the Greek Old Testament to refer, of course, to the Garden of Eden. That was the paradise. And in Revelation 2, verse 7, that same word is used again. And there it actually refers to what? Heaven. Heaven as we know it. It's a place of beauty. It's a place of openness. It's a place of inexpressible blessedness. How about you? Are you ready to get there? <laughs> like even before the service is over today? That's what I say. Man, I, I, if Jesus came to take me home today, there'd be two blessings. One is I'd be in heaven, and second, you wouldn't have to listen to the second part of the sermon. <laughs> but you're going to have to anyway. Now, if we take those three promises you see on the screen together, we can see what a remarkable thing Jesus is saying here. He's promising that this thief who probably lived his entire life in crime, will, upon his death, immediately be transferred into heaven, where he will be in the eternal presence of his Savior, Jesus, the Messiah. I think it's a whole lot more than the thief realized he was asking for. See, in the morning, this guy's in prison. At noon, he's nailed on a cross. By sundown, he's in paradise. Out of a life of sin and shame, he passes immediately into the presence of his Savior. Now, from this, I, I, you know, as I went through this story and kept looking at this over and over again, I just find great comfort, particularly as I have had to bid farewell to loved ones who died in the Lord. Or the many times that I have helped and led services at a funeral. See, at the very moment a believer dies... They pass immediately, that's the word today, into the personal presence of Jesus. I've often said in a funeral that a a believer never really dies. They just take their last breath here on earth. And that next breath is taken in heaven. See, this is what Paul meant when he said that to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with Jesus Christ. I mean, heaven begins the moment we cross that narrow divide between this world and the next doesn't you know today doesn't mean 50 years from today or 150 years from today or 5000 years from today it means today because Jesus said so see this man this thief this professional criminal if you will this man if he showed up at this congregation uh, might make a few people a little uneasy if he moved into your neighborhood, you might consider moving somewhere else. But this man went directly from the cross to paradise. Now from this, I want to share with you three lessons of hope and encouragement for today. Here's lesson number one. It is never too late to turn to Jesus. Now sometimes, and I've heard this in my ministry at prison, doc, yeah, I know what you're telling me, but it's too late for me. I've lived an entire life of crime, and I'm sentenced to death. I'm too old to try that. I've heard that one before, too. See, sometimes it's true on a physical level. I mean, I can vouch for you that as you get older, there's some things you just plain simple don't do anymore. Uh, You will not see me cartwheel down the aisle, for example, after the service today. Not that I ever could. But no one can ever say that about turning to Jesus. It's never too late. If there is life and breath and your heart is still beating, the invitation from Jesus still stands. I mean, can someone be saved at the last second? Well, God, Because of God's amazing grace, how else can you answer that question but say yes, absolutely yes. See, those of us who are praying today for loved ones should take great hope in a story like this. I don't know if you have people in your acquaintance that basically have kept Jesus at arm length most of their lives. They really want nothing to do with him. See, sometimes we look at people like that and they're just so stubborn and so cranky and so adamant about not wanting to hear anything about Jesus that we just finally kind of say... (sighs) I guess they're just too far gone. They're never going to come to Jesus. So what do we do sometimes? We just get discouraged and we stop praying for them. But friends, if this story teaches us anything, no one, no one is ever too gone. It's true, this guy waited to the last second. But it's also true that in the last second, he was saved. Don't ever give up on people you love. I've got a brother. Pray for him all the time. Asks a lot of questions, but isn't interested in taking the next step. But by golly, I'm going to be like a dog that hangs on to your ankle. (laughs) I'm going to pray him to the last day. You know, they may be like this criminal. A kind of a person who's wasted most of their life. And then at the end, turn to Jesus. So don't despair for yourself. Don't despair for your loved ones. Because it's never, never too late to turn to Jesus. Here's the second lesson I think we can take with us. Even at the very worst, even the very worst can be saved at the very last moment. Sometimes we hear people actually make fun of deathbed conversions. I hear every every once in a while when I tell people about what goes down at Angola Prison, they say, oh, that's just a jailhouse conversion. My response to that is, so what? So what? What? You're you're diminishing the fact that they turned to Jesus in a jail? Come on, for heaven's sakes, get over it. Sometimes I say, build a bridge and get over it. Yeah. Do those things ever happen? Deathbed conversions? I can tell you from experience, maybe Pastor Paul can tell you the same thing. He's known people at the very end. Who said yes to Jesus. And why not? Why wouldn't it happen at the end? I I mean, just think about it, folks. A person who knows that they're dying, are they not likely to begin to think and wonder about what's going to happen to me next? And where will I spend eternity? Now, I understand this. I am not, I don't mean to suggest to anyone that they should wait until the last minute. (laughs) Not at all. Uh, I'm not advocating that people live a decadent life and then kind of try to bring it all in at the end. See, people who live that way really aren't very serious about their salvation. I mean, no one should think that they can laugh at Jesus for years and then at the last second repent and be saved. Now, could that happen? Yes, it could happen. And sometimes it does happen. But it's generally not the usual course of events. See, as far as we can tell, this thief had no prior knowledge of Jesus, which makes this conversation actually even more remarkable. But let no one use this as an example of how they can live their life. You've probably heard, don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. If this thief would be here today as your guest preacher instead of me, he would say, friends, don't delay. Give your heart to Jesus now. Now, remember, there were two thieves that were crucified that day, but only one believed. One thief on the cross was saved, that none should despair. The other one, that none should presume. See, the fact remains that this man who died that day was a very bad man. But he was indeed saved at the last moment. And thank God that that is so. See, he had lived a rotten life, yet he died a Christian death it happened purely by the grace of Jesus Christ he he is pardoned before he'd ever lived really what you would call a righteous day see people like me um, perhaps like you have met people that you thought were too far to ever enter into the kingdom of God i mean some people that i've met maybe people you've met are so enslaved by their habits that they despair of ever being set free. I mean, many people would do anything to be forgiven, but they think that forgiveness for them is impossible. So let me put this matter plainly to anyone who may be in that situation today. Friends, it doesn't matter where you've been sleeping or who you've been sleeping with. It doesn't matter what or how much you've been drinking. It doesn't matter who you've been hanging out with. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. It doesn't matter even if you broke all Ten Commandments on the way to church this morning. I'm just saying it just doesn't matter because you can be saved right now. If this man can be saved, I suggest to you, anybody can be saved. If there's hope for him, there's hope for you. There's hope for everyone. If he can make it to heaven, so can you. So can other people. If Jesus would take him, he'll take you. He'd even take a pastor. Here's lesson number three: God has made salvation so simple that anyone can be saved. I mean, consider what we have in this story: salvation. This is going to kind of knock a few Lutherans sideways, but salvation was independent of the sacraments. And by that, just this guy was never baptized. I mean, hold it! How, how can you, how, 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 how? he wasn't baptized? Did you listen to the Old Testament or the uh, reading today from Acts? The jailer, of Philippi, what must I do to be saved? Well, what, what, what was the answer? Well, you have to sign up for pastor's class uh, and you got to get your kids in Sunday school. And then we'll take you in a uh, like a then we'll we'll give you the right hand of fellowship and the left hand of envelopes. Uh, you know, that's what we're going to do for you. No, know, this guy was never baptized. And for heaven's sake, he never came to the altar and received Holy Communion. You know, salvation was also just completely independent of the church. Never went to church. Never walked the aisle. Never raised his hand in a worship service. Never attended membership or confirmation. But he made it to heaven. And salvation was independent of good works. I mean, he could not lift a hand to the Savior because they were nailed to the cross. He couldn't walk and do great things for Jesus because his feet were nailed to the cross. He could not give his money. If he had any for this man, there was no way in except for what the grace and mercy of God. If anybody ever asked you, how can you prove that salvation is by grace and not of works? Take them back to this story. The dying thief was nailed hand and foot to the cross. He could do nothing yet. Even he, through Jesus, infinite grace was saved. No one could have received such a strong assurance of his own forgiveness as this man. You see, in one transforming moment, a man who perhaps was not fit to live on earth was immediately made fit to live in heaven. And friends, I take my stand with that man. I claim the same as he does, by the very mercy and the grace of God worked in me. So we all get to heaven the same way. It's by the grace and mercy of God. end by telling you a short little story. It was about 200 years ago. A man by the name of William Cowper wrote a very famous hymn. It's called There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. you see the words on the screen here. It actually includes a verse about this dying thief. And to my knowledge, this is the only hymn that really mentions this man particularly. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. This dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, as vile as he, wash all my sins away. Friends, all God wants from us and all that he will accept is simple faith. In his son, Jesus. When we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in that very moment, we are saved. And when we leave this earth someday, that day we will be with him in paradise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful gift of salvation that you have worked for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for calling us into your family. We give you thanks for calling us into our family, most of us many years ago. Some of us just a few years ago. The time sometimes really doesn't make much difference. The fact is you called, the Spirit moved us, and we are in your family. Encourage us to continue to pray for those people that are in our lives that still don't know you. Use us to bring that saving message of the gospel to them. And to continue to pray. We praise you. We honor you. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen.